So I wrote you a poem today, which I'm going to use as my exploration. Clouds covering the smallest wedge of light. Standing in the puddle looking for the moon. Gone from this world. Nowhere to be found looking up and down, in front, behind, to each side, lost. Seeking it, longing for it, bending in every direction, falling to my knees. The moon comes up to greet me. So I would like to start here also with the story of inspiration. I was thinking this next year will be 2005, 2006. It will be 40 years since I started my quest. And uh, I'm going to be taking a year sabbatical at that time. And I was thinking back to the 60s and this when I first uh, arrived in Nepal, where I lived for my first year in Asia. And there was a uh, Tibetan, the 16th Karmapa, the late 16th Karmapa, who uh, was there for a month teaching. And there were just a handful of Westerners at the time uh, in Nepal, since I believe you could get a 14-day visa And that was all in that period. And the country had only been open since, I believe, uh, 58 or 59, something like that. And one of the things was we had access to the Karmapa. And so we would go and have audiences, and I took refuge with him. And um, it was sort of an exhilarating time. And one of the things was you weren't supposed to look into their eyes. It was was very sort of, in a sense, uh, ritualistic and and sort of, uh, I don't know, um, I was thinking of sort of Catholic uh, rituals, but this was even more elaborate in some sense. And going to uh, visit him was extremely formal. And I remember going in and uh, getting down. You get down uh, below him. He was sitting on a high chair. And I looked up and I looked into his eyes. And in that moment, it was almost as if I had uh, entered an ocean. Uh, An ocean that wasn't about anybody's story. And that spark suddenly made me realize where this was all going in some way, that it wasn't just some, you know, nice little idea, this awakening. That there was something that uh, was outside of what I know, something beyond this collective of personal story. Several years later, I had the privilege also I, when Ramdas came back to India to bring Be Here Now, 
that it's sort of been a big splash in uh, the culture here at that time. And he, we traveled across India, and he had to be here now with him. Uh, to actually, I was the person in the room when he gave it to Neem Karoli Baba, which was uh, quite a privilege. But also, again, was one of these moments where I sat in front of this old man in a blanket, and I looked into his eyes. And there was a moment again of that oceanic experience where it wasn't about story. Uh, It was about something much bigger, much wider. And these moments were moments of inspiration that kind of pulled the the moon, uh, that part of myself, the awakened part, towards that oceanic. The thing that's difficult here is that even with that, there's another side to the story, and it has to do with the clouds. And just recently, I was in uh, Indonesia for three weeks, and and having left here, taught the Thanksgiving retreat. And uh, being below the equator, one of the wonderful things is it's summer there. So it wouldn't get dark till 10 o'clock. And there was this marvelous uh, early morning uh, when all the sort of jungle birds would start singing at 5 in the morning. Coming back here about three days before this retreat, and uh, recognizing, first of all, uh, the winter solstice, this time of, uh, of really the shortest amount of light during the day, a time uh, when uh, there is this possibility of introspection, of uh, the quieting and the silence. And I really appreciate you coming at this time of year. It's such a unique and wonderful time to kind of stop the madness and, in a sense, surrender uh, to the stillness and the silence. But it does come with a price. It comes with a price. And that's what I'd like to explore somewhat with you this evening. The clouds. Clouds covering the smallest wedge of light, standing in the puddle looking for the moon, gone from this world, nowhere to be found, looking up and down in front, to the side, lost. So this practice, in a sense, is not in the sense that we're searching for the light or searching for love, 
we're actually searching for the barriers of those things that prevent us from being that, from being the moon. And it's our willingness to understand and explore with a sense of curiosity and uh, openness uh, to allow the, in a sense, uh, the clouds of our lives and those things that cover uh, those things that we may want or uh, those things that we'd like to keep away uh, that somehow we come here and in this cauldron, this holding of the community, that we give ourselves permission. First, it's so simple. It's simply the body itself, that first day, where you sit down and no matter what posture, no matter how much sitting you've been doing, somewhere along the line, the body will speak and, in a sense, revolt. There are many ways to deal with that. One is to, of course, change postures, to get up to walk, uh, in our usual fashion, to get busy or do something else. But here we're asked this practice of stopping, this willingness to stop and actually feel what that's like. So, in a sense, we enter willingly uh, into the discomfort. There's also the busyness of the season. This Christmas season, all the complexities of family and uh, shopping and, uh, you know, comparison that happens at this time. And so, in a sense, all this is carried into the room here. These are not things we hide. These are things that, uh, through this practice, uh, they come. And maybe first it just came as some kind of uh, tiredness or deep sense of uh, stiffness. Uh, I was looking at the, going to talk somewhat about difficulties and uh, in kind of Buddhist terminology we talked about the hindrances and one of the uh, writers Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about this sloth and sleepiness as stiffness and so this sloth and sleepiness and stiffness comes as part of our practice of relationship How are you relating to that state? Are you just trying to avoid it and say, oh, I'm not a good person, you know, I can't stay awake, or, uh, you know, this, uh, maybe I should do something else, or uh, I'm wasting my time being here. But this is a challenge. These are the things that are given to us. These are the gifts, actually, that come in this cauldron. And that our willingness to have a relationship with it. It's, it's interesting, in, I was thinking in India where they uh, worship Kali, 
which is actually the darkness. And that it's something that is not something that you hide and put in the closet and shut up and lock and put some kind of huge you know, chain around. You actually honor its power and how, uh, what is it that it brings? And we all have stories then. Once we have this relationship to our tiredness and we start uh, actually relating to it in some way that is uh, not about wrong or uh, something that should be different, but actually, what is it that's that? You know, what is the experience of that where the eyelids, where you try to keep your eyes open and they're so heavy? they keep coming down. What is that point? When you give in, do you wrestle with that? There is a huge teaching right there. It's not about good or bad. It's simply about what's given here. What is it that's offered to you? And how? How do you work with it? Once there's some settling that happens in the body, some, you, most of you have come to, well, some relationship with it in the sense of uh, some stillness. And maybe the tiredness now has receded some. But then what? Then maybe it's the stories, you know, your top 10 tapes about your life. You know, who you were, who you are, who you'll be. And we began this process of playing those tapes in some way. Judging them good, bad, happy, sad. And again, it's this practice of uh, not that we're trying to get rid of our thoughts. We're not trying to get rid of the stories. There is, again, the relationship to it. How are you relating to it? Is there a stiffness? Is there a pushing away? Is there the uh, creating of the enemy? Or is it that... Uh, that creature, the, the kind of wanting one, the if only, then I would be okay. You know, if I had the better Zafu or the, you know, the, the perfect reclining chair or something, you know, then I would be happy. Or if they just give us coffee in the morning, or maybe it, maybe it was, maybe it's my, uh, uh, you know, poached eggs I have to have every morning. There's so much here that is part of how our mind keeps multiplying itself. And there's not a right or wrong here. It's simply to notice that. This is a wisdom practice. We settle. The mind begins to settle. And then see how it moves and where it moves. And it's our relationship to it.
I had two pieces I wanted to kind of read to you about. Uh, one is simply about that, actually the last retreat I taught with uh, Robert Hall, it's one of his poems. And it's called The Wanting Creature. The wanting creature is loose. All the time it leers and lurks behind good thoughts and desperate bursts of hope. He corrals the unsuspecting, surprises everyone with his smart promises and chic ideas. The wanting creature, born within, living only to get out and wreak violent greed. Go after him. Seek where he hides with all the wreckage dripping from his, his fat and quivering jowls. There is nothing to lose. He has already destroyed last year's crops. He is no friend to anybody, only wants what feels good for now and tells you that that's all there is. Don't believe him. He'll trick you every time. Then you'll have to start over again. First, forgiveness. Then the resolve to go on, tiptoeing your way past his dark cave, hoping today is the day he sleeps. But you know deep down, he is a very light sleeper. And it's not saying that in any way that, uh, you know, in a sense, desire in our uh, wanting, there is uh, the healthy side of the wanting, the desire. And it's really this uh, practice of uh, awakening that we're all here, uh, that that brings you here. There's also this uh, simple want to help. But there is this other wanting, uh, this uh, creature within us saying, uh, somehow it is always saying, this is not enough. Right now is not enough. You know, one piece of chocolate isn't enough. You know, and, uh, and it's not that this is good or bad. It's simply how can we relate to this in a way that we allow ourselves to feel the full impact of what wanting is like. What is it like? No. this practice of deeply touching and feeling what it is that's arising. Not moving towards it, but simply uh, allowing it to move through uh, is the simplicity of the practice. 
We don't need to fight with it. No. We, in a sense, there is the ability to, uh, I used in my poem, of falling down on your knees. This uh, surrendering sometimes to the discomfort, to the truth of the discomfort, and recognizing its essential nature, that it has the nature to arise and it will be there for a little while, but it will pass away, bringing this wisdom uh, factor into uh, that that holds us in captivity for periods of time. It's so funny traveling outside the United States lately and being an American. And um, I, I was sitting in the, on this little island, and and um, I went to see 9/11, Michael Moore's 9/11. And of course, there were there was all Europeans there, and I remember saying to my wife, "Shh." Speak in a French accent. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I hadn't felt, I suddenly I felt really embarrassed about kind of the creation that's uh, been going on. And this is a piece from Sam, Sam Keen. And it's called The Enemy Maker. To create an enemy... Start with an empty canvas. Stretch it broad. Outline the forms of men, women, and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace onto the face of the enemy the greed, hatred, and carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the mirrored loves, hopes, fears that play through the kaleidoscope of every finite heart. Twist the smile until it forms the downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosized into beast, vermin, insect, filling in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, devils, demons. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, Slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will become merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectics of history. So, the extreme of the aversive mind. So what are we doing here? 
It's not to avoid the angry, the critical, the, the judge within oneself. Uh, it is not to uh, keep away uh, the wanting, but to see the power uh, of these forces of this kind of Kali that holds us in captivity for periods of time and find out how is it that you release it? How is it that the awareness itself surrenders, gets down on its knees? This is Buddha's story, and I've kind of labeled it the alchemy of welcoming. The Buddha once told a story about Saka, the ruler of the devas, the heavenly beings. And while Saka was out visiting the far reaches of his land, a bitter pot-bellied dwarf came to visit the castle, finding the king absent. He went up and sat himself upon his throne. This was an act of supreme sacrilege. Saka's followers tried to bully, shame, taunt, and scarf the dwarf away. With each bullying and shame and taunting, he grew bigger and stronger in exact proportion to the resistance to his presence. The king was called back from his journey in order to get rid of the unwanted guest. Upon entering the throne room, he draped his robe over his shoulders of the dwarf and knelt in respect before him. With every act of welcoming and appreciation and recognition, the dwarf became smaller and smaller, uglier and more bitter until finally he simply vanished. Read another here. This is from Native American. An elder Cherokee Native American was teaching his grandchildren about life. He said to them, A fight is going on inside me. It is a terrible fight and is between two wolves. One wolf represents fear, anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, pride, and superiority. The other wolf stands for joy, peace, hope, sharing, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, friendship, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. This same fight is going on inside of you and every other person too. They thought about it for a minute and then one child asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed.
So there is this untangling, uh, this willingness to kind of touch the uh, our own kind of clouds, the darkness itself. And it is the attitude, it is this uh, mindfulness that that recognizes it uh, and knows it in present time. Mindfulness in its uh, essence, in its, in sense, purity, uh, is not swayed by uh, either greed or aversion or delusion. It is a moment of complete wakefulness. And so we come together here, even though we call on the forces, in a sense, in the quieting, uh, all the things in the closet that you have stored uh, for sometimes months, sometimes years, sometimes a lifetime. Uh, Those doors are allowed to be opened here. Of course, the stuff falls out. (laughs) But we have this practice as a in a collective of the mindfulness that acknowledges it. And in that acknowledging, uh, this practice of coming back to the breath, of staying with the body, of knowing, naming, uh, whether it's anger or fear or aversion, in that moment, there is an unhooking an untangling. And this release, uh, one moment at a time. It doesn't happen quickly. It took years and years to build up the stuff in the closet, the complexity of the stuff there. So we simply do one thing at a time here, one moment at a time. As we kneel and surrender to really, in a sense, our wholeness, to all parts of ourselves, leaving nothing out, uh, the unwanted as well as the wanted, that as we came here the first night, there was that full moon that was shining. And this morning, uh, there was the waning moon. Uh, It is still there. It is still part of who you are. When the mind lets go of its battle, when it simply, as Gil spoke that first night, just this acceptance of just here, 
and the fullness of wholeness of what is available. Uh, it includes, as you sit here right now, this whole body experience. This is not about something you think. This is about a wholeness. We train ourselves meticulously and precisely with bringing the attention to the breath. Uh, a, A natural movement that is of all beings, it is universal, it is not separate from any human being. It is all beings, breathe. And so, in a sense, we are touching into uh, that universal. And at first, it's this connection with the personal. That somehow we have to untangle our self-story. And that self-story certainly is a complexity. But it is not all of who you are. And I go back to that oceanic. Uh, of looking in the Karmapa's eyes or Neem Karoli's eyes, in that oceanic, that that is present, that is part of who you are. Your mind, this seeking, in some way, has to stop. Uh, identify for years and years. That was my identity, the seeker, the one who was seeking. But the practice asks that you abandon that seeker, that you give that away. And in doing that, you only have here. There is only what's here. And we can stay with the clouds and get stuck and say, oh, that's all there is. Or we can release to the wholeness that the moon still shines, even with the clouds, uh, even with that knee or back or shoulder or jaw or that Uh, old wound that somehow holds that uncompleted story uh, ahead, somewhere ahead. Releasing that for here, then there is this wakefulness that is in front of you, behind you, to all sides of you. It is not limited to this mind, to this body. There is uh, also a knowing that's not about you. It is simply this universal And our practice is certainly to confront the smallness of who we think we are. 
But ultimately, it's to release that. It's to see that freedom was not something out there. It was not something in some book or somebody else's idea of something. It is something that you recognize in yourself. And begin to see that you have choice. And you can choose that freedom, that here, this place, that is not about struggle. It simply is already illuminated. In their moments, of course, we contract and get confused. But every moment of mindfulness is actually a moment of deconditioning. It is breaking the conditioned habit of this contraction of who we think we are and how it's supposed to be. But every moment, even though it's such a minute moment, and we put very little importance on that moment, it's something we just pass over because there's no solidity there. There's no fixedness or hardness there or any kind of identity whatsoever. And I encourage you to, in those moments where you believe it may be boring, nothing's happening, look and allow that wakefulness uh, to simply rest in that, in this place. It's not knowing anything. It has nothing to know. And it has nothing to be or nowhere to go, uh, nothing to even to experience. And yet to begin to rely, to change one's actual thinking, one's importance to that that is not known, to moments that have no charge whatsoever on them, no positive, no negative. They are simply moments, uh, self-existing, self-existing awareness. That relaxation, that deep sense of peace, uh, even if it's only a moment, can become the place that is important. Not the identity, the struggle of changing the identity all the time, being something different or better, you know, not messed up or, you know, something. Forget it. Forget it. And so you've switched from becoming better or enlightened or something to this very subtle awareness 
of moments that have no hooks. They grasp at nothing. They hold nothing. And they become your refuge. And that is really the changing of the mind here. Yes, you have to find out about the clouds and the darkness and and how it affects you and what suffering is and how you uh, keep repeating the same things over. Sometimes just changing the names. And thinking somehow you'll get it right the next time. But there's another way. And the Buddha simply was pointing This is from What Are You Doing With Your Life, J. Krishnamurti. When you give total and complete attention, there is no observer at all. And it is this observer that breeds fear because the observer is the center of thought. It is the me, the I, the self, the ego, The observer is the censor. When there is no thought, there is no observer. That state is not a blank state. That demands a great deal of inquiry, never accepting anything. Anything. Never accepting anything. Silence, stillness, and awareness are not states and therefore not, cannot be produced or created. Silence is a non-state in which all states arise and subside. Silence is itself eternal witness without form or, at, or attribute. As you rest more profoundly, All objects take on their natural functionality and awareness becomes free of mind's compulsive contractions and identifications and returns to its natural non-state of presence, this self-existing awareness. Most, this is from Mumi, most people guard against going into the fire, so end up in it. So in a sense we have to, uh, this is a journey through, but it's not going anywhere. There was nowhere to go here. 
So I'd like to end here. I'll just read my poem again to close. Clouds covering the smallest wedge of light, standing in the puddle looking for the moon, gone from this world. Nowhere to be found looking up and down, in front, behind, to each side, lost, seeking it, longing for it, bending in every direction, falling to my knees, the moon comes up to greet me. Big job. Just sit for a moment. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 29, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.